Not they who soar, but they who plod their rugged way unhelped to God are heroes. They who hire fair and flying fan the upper air, miss all the toil that hugs the sod. Tis they whose back have felt the rod, whose feet have pressed the path unshod, may smile upon the feeded care. Not they who soar. High up, there are no thorns to prod, no boulders lurking beneath the clod to turn the keenness of the share. For flight is ever free and rare, but heroes, they the soil who throd, not they who soar. Thank you for downloading Poet on Song, a podcast that proposes to love a poet with you and to accompany them to great music. My name is Mariama Antoine, and today it is the verbal landscape and exegetic portraits of the first fully recognized African-American writer, the poet, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, that we'll explore. It is in the mind, I think, that we are made men of beasts. Beyond that, there's only the biological evidence of our belonging to one race, a race of upright apes whom through cooperation and storytelling have come to dominate the planet. But to be recognized as human, to declare yourself a human being, I am a man, I imagine, must produce some powerful effect because those words invite the possibility of growth, of expansion, the prospect of becoming. So what would it mean to live a life bereaved of that prospect? What does it mean to feel when the life destined to you is that of a lowly beast of burden? What does that struggle look like? Is it rage? Are we consumed by it? And where do people find the strength to project themselves beyond the basis assumptions made about who they are and believe despite the seemingly unalterable permanence of their circumstances that they are and can be more? Those questions are at the core of Dunbar's writing because he images it through the lives, the thoughts, the intimacy, the struggles of Black Americans at the end of the 19th century. So we get these vivid emotional pockets, how music soothes because the work is overwhelming, how legitimacy is the greatest ambition, what hospitality means to people who have very little, the lies they tell themselves to push on, to persevere, the pleasure It is to see your wife, even if it's only when the master lets you. Paul Lawrence Dunbar's song offers us the first brushstrokes of the African canvas in America, which will be textured, layered, refined by writers like Claude McKay's or Neil Hurston, Langston Hughes, James Baldwin, Ralph Ellipson, Toni Morrison, just to name a favorite few. But his is the first established voice. And there's a lot to be said about that.
Dunbar wrote many of his poems in standard English, but was known for his use of the Negro dialect, that is to say, that he wrote in the vernacular of the Black masses as he heard them. I want to read you two of those dialect poems, written in the voice of a lowly slave. And I'm using the word lowly deliberately here, because one of Dunbar's first collection was entitled Lyrics of Lowly Life. And the first, a slave recounts a moment of communion with music. And the second, the delectable pleasure of being granted permission to see his wife. I'll read them to you in a bit. Here is most of a poem entitled A Banjo Song. Oh, there's a lot of care and trouble in this world to swallow down. An old sorrow pretty lively in her way of getting around. Yet there are times when I forget them. Aches and pains and troubles and all. It's when at evening I take my old banjo from the wall. About that time that night has fallen and my daily work is done. And above the shady hilltops, I can see the setting sun when the quiet, restful shadows is beginning just to fall. Then I take the little banjo from its place upon the wall. Then my family gathers round me in the fading of the light as I strike the string to try them if this all tuned all right. And it seems we're so nigh heaven, we kind of hear the angels sing when the music of that banjo sets my cabin all a ring and my wife and all the others male and female small and big even gray-haired granny who seems about to do a jig 
or like change the style of the music, change the movement of the time. And the ringing little banjo plays a heat feeling high and somehow my throat gets choky and a lump keeps trying to rise like it wanted to catch the water that was flowing to my eyes. And I feel I could sort of knock the socks clean off a sudden. And as I hear my poor old granny with her trembling voice join in, then we all throw in our voices for the help that you now, like a big camp meeting choir trying to sing a mouth of foos. And our throats let out the music sweet and solemn, loud and free, while the rafters in my cabin echo with the melody. Oh, the music of the banjo, quick and devilish and solemn and slow, is the greatest joy and solace that a rary slave can know. Here's the second poem. It's called When Samuel Sings. is making hay work is pretty mildly heavy for a man to be so gay you can tell there's something special from the canter of the song something's wholly pleasing samuel when he's singing all day long heard him wobbling way this morning it was light enough to see some like music in the evening always good enough for me but that man commands it to holler oh he even washed his face would you believe the scandalous rascal woke the birds around the place? Samuel took a trip a Saturday, dressed himself in all he had, took a cane and went a strolling, looking mighty pleased and glad. Some folks don't know what the matter, but I do. You bet your life. Samuel smiling and singing, cause he'd been to see his wife. She live on the fur plantation 20 miles or so, and our man is happy when he get the chance to go. Walking ain't always the nicest, morning find him on the way. But he always come back smiling, like his pleasure was his pay. Then he do a heap of talking, though he mostly kind of still. With the words they get so running, like the water from the mill. What's the use of having trouble? What's the use of having strife? 
That's the way Samuel preaches when he been to see his wife. And I reckon I get jealous. I like laugh and joke and scorn and say, go on, Samuel, there's the go on blowing your horn. But this coming Saturday, there'll be brighter days in life. And I'll be just as glad as Samuel is when I go to see my wife. Not all who heard responded well to Dunbar's use of Negro dialect and the unease of Black intellectuals is all over the pages of history. To be fair, Dunbar wrote for an almost exclusively white readership. Was he pleasing his white audience by reinforcing ideas of Black America that comforted them in their views? Or did he image what was there? Was it not his duty to look to the best of what his race produced and image that, and therefore push the struggle for equality forward? Though there may have been others before him, and I'm thinking of Phyllis Whitley. He was the first to take a bird's eye view of black identity in America, the first to look at his people objectively and catalog their humor, their pain, their strength, their shortcomings. And short, he offers the first literary portrait of Black America. He introduces an African-American character to our literary landscape, one that rises above the, the painted Black faces, which made the menstruals such a landmark of our theater. That's not to say that he wholly escapes that influence. But what he delivers on, at least for me, is authenticity. And in doing so, frames the complexity of two very different currents tailoring Black identity in the 19th century. What we are versus what we can be. 
And isn't that American? It is so wholly embedded in our culture that it's shocking. That question is still very much at the fore of our present debate. unfortunate legacies of oppression or being born at the bottom of a cultural hierarchy is that you spend so much time and energy proving yourself. What is distinctive about your group is branded the fact or unacceptable. It's unattractive, it's subpar. Consequently, the struggle is to forge a path out of that weighing perception so that there's a propensity to closet, to subdue the distinction because while well, it's stigmatized and your desire is for acceptance so that the price of simulation, at least as I witnessed it, has always seen a certain loss of authenticity. That's something I came to realize when reading Dunbar's poetry and his unabashed representation of Black America. But to see that took me a while. I was distracted. Toni Morrison called racism a distraction. A distraction that keeps you from doing your work. And by God, what is the work of a Black artist at the end of the 19th century if not to tell the joys and woes of former slaves in their own voice? When I was in middle school in Connecticut, once for Black History Month, we got a treat. Two African-American actors, well, I suppose we call them cultural architects now, came to our school dressed in full 19th century mode. The one with the illustrious mane and the shock of white hair and stately demeanor, I was told was Frederick Douglass. I knew about him. And the other, a slimmer, almost demure figure was lean and very dark, and we were told that his name was Paul Lawrence Dunbar. I remember pushing back a muse into my chair, my girlfriend and I, one body and a fusion then. Dunbar was the first to speak, and he said this poem in a loud and clearing voice. It's called The Perfect Song. It may be misery not to sing at all and to go silent through the briming day. It may be sorrow never to be loved 
but deeper griefs than these beset the way. To have come close to sing the perfect song and only by a half note lose the key. There is the potent sorrow, there the grief, the pale, sad staring of life's tragedy. To have just missed the perfect love, not the hot passion of untempered youth, but that which lays aside its vanity and gives thee for thy trusting worship truth. This, this is to be accursed indeed. For if we mortals love or if we sing, we count not our joys by the things we have, but by what has kept us from the perfect thing. Those words, his voice, their meaning, I remember when jolting through my core and I retained every word of that poem from the first time I heard it. Now, was he my introduction into poetry? No, Baudelaire was. Did he make me love it as I do now? I don't know. Maybe. But I remember that he was black and subtle and profound. And until then, I had never heard such depth from a black mouth before. And because I had now, there was a kind of an opening in me, a validation that until then, I had not imagined I needed. Here's another poem written in standard English. You may recognize it from Maya Angelou's famous novel. It's called Sympathy. I know what the cage bird feels, alas, when the sun is bright on the upland slopes, when the bird stirs soft through the springing grass and the river flows like a stream of glass, when the first bird sings and the first buds ope, and the faint perfume from his chalice steals. I know what the cage bird feels. I know why the cage bird beats his wings till its blood is red on the cruel bars, for he must fly back to his perch and cling when he fain would be on the bow swing. And a pain still throbs in the old, old scars, and they pulse again with a keener sting. I know why he beats his wings. I know why the cage bird sings, ah me. When his wing is bruised and his bosom sore, when he beats his bars and would be free, it is not a carol of joy, but a prayer that he sends from his heart's deep core, but a plea that towards up to heaven he flings. I know why the cage bird sings.
many days Since you went away I often think of you Dunbar was the first full-blooded Negro to be allowed the status of writer in America. He was a Black man who wrote literature in the 19th century. And though the thought may leave us indifferent now, then, that was extraordinary. It was not a life without its fair share of struggle. He died young, 33, of tuberculosis, which he nursed with alcohol. He was divorced. He had married the poet, journalist, activist, Alice Dunbar Nelson, who'd later become an influential voice in the Harlem Renaissance, and no class president of his white progressive school in Dayton, Ohio, he went to school with the Wright brothers, if you can believe that, who were intimate friends and patrons. He too felt what W.E.B. Du Bois referred to in the soul of Black folk as the veil which forever separated Blacks from the white world settled in a job as elevator boy because it allowed him the time to write. And write he did. A dozen books of poetry, four books of short stories, four novels, lyrics to a play, performed on Broadway. So what can Paul Lawrence Dunbar add to the boisterous, thoughtful, unruly, and most provocative conversation? that the United States is finally having about race. I think it's the idea that we can't cherry pick what we want to retain about who we are, who we wish to be, and what we have been. That it is the entirety of our story that has molded us. And that there is great lucidity, strength, and poise in accepting the truth. That's wrong But oh Someday Someday Darling I won't be Trouble No This is where we end. This has been Poet on Song, and my name is Mariama Antoine. The music that you've heard on this podcast is as follows. The Shadow of Your Smile by Dexter Gordon. Farewell Blues by Eric Weisberg. Trouble by Mahalia Jackson. A Change is Gonna Come by Otis Redding. Picking Time by Smoky River. Chain Gang by Sam Cooke. Lenny by C.V. Ray Vaughan. Trouble Blues by Sam Cooke. I Believe to My Soul by Ray Charles. I hope that you'll come again, for I mean to take you on a journey across the Paris of the 19th century, the opium-induced and shuddering beauty of the French poet Charles Baudelaire, who has much to teach us about the cost of decadence. See you soon. Yeah.
it so hard I think I'm gonna have to use my rod Cause I believe I believe Yes, I believe I say I believe right now I believe Yes, I believe Well, I believe to my soul Trying to make a fool of me I believe When you know my name is Ray, that's why I believe that now. I believe, yes, I believe. I say I believe that now. I believe, yes, I believe. Oh, 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 I believe to my soul now. Trying to 